0: Lord, all right, I know we've all had our coffee, but I just want to stand up for a minute. Let's worship God. Let's ask God to help us. One more seminar. Ask the Holy Ghost to uh, embed this in our hearts. Let's praise God together. Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for your word. God, we praise you for who you are. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for your blessing and power and anointing and dominion. Amen. You can have your seat. Amen. As we pray, Father, I plead the blood of Jesus over this assembly. I thank you for every couple, every marriage, God, every work, every worker. And I'm asking you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to try to be even-handed in this one. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Just want to say that, you know, the um, real focus of all that we do is eternity and getting others to eternity. And that's why we need good marriages and good families. Amen. Philippians chapter 2. Continuing in the theme of the differences between men and women. I don't know if you've heard some of these illustrations before, but here's a story that uh, illustrates the difference between men and women. Let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. He asks her out. She accepts. They have a good time. He asks her out again. They enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly. And after a while, neither one of them is seeing anybody else. Then one evening they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine. And without really thinking, she says, do you realize as of tonight we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there's silence in the car. (laughs) To Elaine, it sounds like a very loud silence. She thinks, geez, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation he doesn't want or isn't sure of. Roger's thinking, hmm, six months. (laughs) (laughs) Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space, so I'd have time to think about whether I really want us to keep going the way we are, moving steadily toward, I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading toward marriage, toward children, toward a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I even know this man? (laughs) Roger's thinking, six months, that's right after I got the car from the dealer. Let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm way overdue for an oil change here. (laughs) Elaine's thinking he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he's even sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. Roger's thinking, I'm going to have to have him look at that transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's still not shifting, right? Right? They better not blame it on the cold weather. This time, cold weather, it's 87 degrees out. This thing's shifting like a blanking garbage truck, and I paid those guys 600 bucks. Elaine's thinking he's angry. I don't blame him. I'd be angry too. God, I feel so guilty putting him through this, but I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. Roger's thinking they'll probably say it's the stinking warranty. That's, I know that's what they're going to say, those scumballs. Elaine's thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic. Waiting for a knight to come riding up on his white horse when I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I enjoy being with, a person I do really care about, a person who seems truly to care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. Roger's thinking, warranty? They want a warranty. I'll give them their warranty right (laughs) Elaine says aloud, "Roger, what?" Roger says, startled. "Please don't torture yourself like this," she says. Her eyes beginning to brim with tears. "Maybe I should never have." Oh God, I feel so. She begins to cry. "What?" says Roger. "I'm such a fool," says Elaine. "I mean, I know there's no knight. I know that. That's silly. There's no knight and there's no horse. There's no horse." You think I'm a fool, don't you, Elaine says. No. Roger says, glad he finally knows what to say. (laughs) No. Elaine says, it's just that I need more time. There's a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response, finally comes up with one he thinks it might work. Yes, he says. (laughs) Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way? What way? (laughs) That way about time. Yes. (laughs) Elaine turns to face him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous (laughs) about what she might say next, especially if it involves a horse. (laughs) At last she speaks. Thank you, Roger. As Roger back? (laughs) He takes her home and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps till dawn, whereas when Roger gets back to his place, he opens a bag of Doritos, (laughs) turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians he's never heard of. A tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him something major was going back, going on in the car back there. He's pretty sure there's no way he would ever understand what, so he figures it's better if he doesn't think about it. <laughs> the next day, Elaine will call her closest friend or perhaps two of them, and they will talk about this situation for six straight hours. In painstaking detail, they will analyze everything she said and everything he said, going over it time and time again, exploring every word, expression, and gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification. They will continue to discuss the subject on and off for weeks, maybe months, never reaching any definite conclusion, but never getting bored with it either. Meanwhile, Roger, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Elaine's, will pause before serving in front and say, Norm, did Elaine ever own a horse? (laughs) I want to leave you with something a, a, a bit lighter fare. And I want to preach a sermon I've called Culture Shock. The differences between men and women. Let's read Philippians 2, 1 through 10 together. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my love by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Culture shock. The differences between men and women. I want to start out uh, years ago I was given a book by my mother And it was uh, the Venus and Mars thing, and and this this our author came out: men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and that's been overdone over the years, I think, to the point of exhaustion. But I want to look at that principle. And so, point one: I'm calling men are from Neptune, and women are from somewhere else. (laughs) And so, there has to be an understanding between men and women in our text says there has to be a humility when you approach differences there has to be a willingness to recognize differences and actually get the mind of the other person and not consider yourself right or wrong or better or worse but that in relationship in the church there's going to have to be a humility of mind that considers the interests And the mindset of somebody else. And that's what I want to talk about. Because beyond plumbing and hormones, men and women are fundamentally different emotionally. How they think, how they communicate. Every cell in a man's body is different from the cells in a woman's body. And I want to talk about them using this parable You know, men run in packs. You know, if you look at little boys at school, they're running like a wolf pack, terrorizing. Every time you add another little boy to the pack, the collective IQ of the pack is cut in half. (laughs) And they're perfectly comfortable with that. But if you were to look at the same schoolyard, you'll see the little girls have paired off. And little girls, they want a best friend. And I had three girls. I was mystified. My my girls would come home with these schoolyard problems. She stole my friend. What? I had to read books. (laughs) The myth of the whole Venus-Mars thing is that men... And women came from different planets, and men had their planet with their culture, and women had their planet with theirs, and they somehow saw each other through the telescopes and agreed to meet on earth, but soon forgot they were from different planets. And on the different planets, there's different etiquette, there's different culture, there's different customs. So I want to explore that myth in in, in a tongue-in-cheek way, if, if, if you will, in the context of our scripture. Let's talk about the man planet for a moment. On the man planet, men never talk about their problems with each other. That is a sign of weakness. Everybody knows that. When a man has a problem, he goes into his cave and he thinks about his problem because he wants to solve it all by himself. And so traditionally at any time on the man planet, huge portions of the population have disappeared into their caves. (laughs) Nobody bothers them. Nobody's freaking out about this. Nobody's offended at that. Everybody understands. Hey, the guy's in the cave. Leave the man alone. When he's done sulking and thinking about his problem, he'll come out. And when men are in polite public society, they never admit they have problems. How's it going? Great. How's it going with you? Great. Things are great. Great. It's great. It's like seagulls at the beach. Great, 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 great. You go to conference, you see the men's center. How are you doing? Great. Things great, great, great. Ministry, great. Church, great, great. Car, great, great car. Everything's great, great. you great. I'm great. It's great. That's the way men are. That's why in marriage, men get mad if the wife goes to the pastor. You told him our problems. How dare you? You don't do that because that's very rude on the man planet. On the women planet, it's different, totally different. If you were to look at the women planet, their entire society has large centers that are designed for no other reason for women to get together and talk about their problems. (laughs) That's what they do on their planet. It is not a sign of weakness. On the woman planet, it is a sign of friendship. Every woman wants a best friend that she can share her secrets with and talk about her problems. They don't necessarily want to talk about their problems to solve the problem. They're just talking about them to empathize and to sympathize and to get it off their chest. Men have a hard time with that. They call this witching. We're gonna we're gonna rhyme. That's what the, that's what men call that. <laughs> Say it isn't so. But women, this is to them a sign of friendship. To be able to get together and talk about their problems. And it's really, it's in the talking about it. It's not really about getting a solution. It's like playing ping pong and just not competing, just seeing how long you can keep it going. (laughs) Just keep it going. A nice long volley, you know, just (laughs) incredibly satisfying. (laughs) On the man planet, however, there is one caveat to this. The only time a man admits he has a problem is when he cannot figure it out himself. He's in the cave. He has exhausted all his own wisdom, his resources. He can't figure it out, so he will seek out one whom he respects, and ask their advice on the man planet if somebody asks your advice that is a great compliment they have come to you you are the wise one and the man who has been asked his wisdom will then put on the mr. fix-it hat and dispense wisdom to the humble one that has approached him and it's over Now you put these two creatures together on earth and you have some major potential problems. You add to that that women have a biological need to speak at least 25,000 words a day. (laughs) And men only have a biological need to speak about 10,000 maybe, give or take a few. And this is what it looks like. The man comes home from work. He's bothered by some things. He has problems. He goes into his cave and buries himself in the newspaper. He's sulking. He's already spoken his 10,000 words. He's done for the day. (laughs) Trying to think through the things that are bothering him. He is expecting a little space. Meanwhile, his wife has been looking forward to her friend to come home all day. Her husband slash friend. She also has some problems and she's looking forward to talking about them with her friend. She's only spoken 5,000 words and they've all been to children. She's got 20,000 good words on her ledger. She is looking forward to sharing and talking and emphasizing with her friend. And she commits the sin of walking right into the cave. She walks right into the cave and he's immediately like, what? That's rude, there's nothing even said yet, already he's irritated. What kind of breach of etiquette is this? And without any explanation, she starts talking about problems. She's talking about her problems with me. In my cave. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it dawns on him, oh, I get it. She wants my advice. I'll forgive her the breach of the cave thing. Puts on the Mr. Fix-It hat begins to impatiently wade through, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Every painful detail. Interrupts her when he's got the gist of it. Okay, 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 got it, got it, got it. Do this, do this, do this, tell her to shove it, do this with the kids and do that, boom. He is satisfied with a job well done goes back to the newspaper and she's mad. He's like, what? She says, why don't you ever talk to me? He says, we were just talking. I just talked to you. Why are we still talking about this? Is this connecting? The problem, sir, is she didn't want a solution. She wanted to play ping pong with you. <laughs> with her friend. And you grabbed the ball and crushed it and threw it in the garbage. And he's mystified and says, "What? You don't love me? Why won't you ever listen to me when we're talking?" He says, "Well, we we don't we're done." It's two different cultures, man. It's culture shock. Okay. On the other hand, on the man planet. It's perfectly fine to give advice when somebody asks you, but you never give unsolicited advice if a man doesn't ask you. That's very rude. Because if a man doesn't ask for your advice, that means he's going to, by God, solve it himself. And if he needs help, he will decide who, and when, and where to ask. And if he doesn't ask, you don't say anything. Everybody knows that. And so the man is driving. Now this whole thing about men won't stop to ask, that's not true. They will stop and ask to, uh, but I will stop when I want, where I want, and ask who I want, okay? Besides, that's what maps are for. First, we try the map. Okay, so the man is driving, and he appears to be lost to his friend slash wife. He appears to be confused. She means nothing by it, but she innocently chimes in, why don't you turn here, honey? And he's mad. He's thinking, you know what? Why don't you just shut up? That's what he's thinking. He may not say that. Because I did, did I ask you? No. And she might even be right, but the truth is she just ruined it. She ruined it because now he will not turn there. He will, he will not turn there because he cannot turn there. Because if he turns there, that means he's an idiot. So he will go up one block and turn around and come back, but he won't do it because he didn't ask you. And that is incredibly rude. That's very rude. It's culture shock. She's like, what, "What's your problem?" I Shes, "I don't have a stinking problem. You got a problem. I didn't ask you." Right? It's like, this is like played out every day. Okay, Men, on the women planet, you have to understand. In their culture, it is not appropriate all the time to make a direct request. On the women planet, they use subtlety. <laughs> women seek consensus on things. So let's say the whole direction thing didn't happen, and, and, and the man's just driving down the road, and all of a sudden she says, Honey, do you want to stop for a soda? It's a pretty linear question do I want to stop for a soda? That's a question. That's what she said. So he takes inventory of his, his thirst, finds no need, and says, no. No, I don't. He just, you ask me a question, I give you the answer. Do I want to stop for a soda? i'm fine no all of a sudden he says she's mad because she wasn't seeking inventory she wanted a drink and she's opening negotiations and later when it dawns on him he says why didn't you tell me you were thirsty she says i did We're not even going to talk about, honey, do you want anything? No, and then can I have a bite of yours? We won't even go there. We don't, we don't have time. The point, the point is the scriptural solution is verse 4. This is written in a congregational setting, but this applies to Marriage. Because he's saying, if there is any love, if there is any affection, then you're going to have to put aside the the selfish, and, and you know, this is just natural human beings in their own world. He says, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So, here is the Christian response to differences. Understand that your spouse is from another planet. They have a different culture. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. And and I don't even know how to say this without sounding weird, but somebody said that marriage, the problem with marriage isn't that you married the wrong person, it's just you married somebody of the opposite sex. But that's not a problem, we want it that way. You can't even say that in this generation. You're supposed to marry somebody, but the problem is not that person. The problem is that they're different from you. And if this is going to work, you got to make room for each other. It's a great book. I don't know if it's been touted here. It's called His Needs and Her Needs. I don't have the author in front of me, but this would be a good book. His Needs, Her Needs. It is a very... Fundamental manual on the difference in needs between men and women. We've talked about some of these. She needs affection. He needs sex. She needs conversation. He needs sex. (laughs) 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 She needs security. He needs respect and food, and sex. (laughs) Different needs. She's not your disciple, men. And ladies, he's not your girlfriend. And there's a revelation you can come to, and that is that He cannot expect her to meet all his needs. And she cannot expect him to meet all her needs. We're not talking about sexual here. We're talking about emotional, relational. Somebody wrote Jim Dobson and said, why is it that men are so insensitive in this generation. And he wrote back a very, very good letter. He says, men are no different today than they were 100 years ago. The difference is 100 years ago, when men went to work, women got together. And they would make things for their children. And they would wash their clothes together. And they would relate as only women can relate to each other. And they would talk. And they would, they would, they would play ping pong. And the men on the job, they're, they're doing the man thing, you know. And then when they came back together, there was something that was met in their emotions. I thought, that what a profound concept as we live in our suburban environment where we don't even know our own neighbors, you know, and community. And you know what, there's times that women... You just need to get together with your friends and, and just have some female friends, and don't try to make your husband your girlfriend. And men, go kill something. I don't, you know, go, <laughs> go conquer something. Do, build a house. Do something. Rent a backhoe. I rented a backhoe last <laughs> fall. I had a. I'm telling you something, man. I get on you. <laughs> up there digging in the yard and stuff. (laughs) You gotta understand that you gotta make room for the differences. When it comes to sexuality, men are like a switch, on and off. Women are like an iron, they need to warm up. So you know, there needs to be a little trade-off here, okay? Men, you know, during the day, show some affection be polite. You can't be a boorish, rude animal and then at, as soon as nightfall, you know, put on the toga, let the games begin. <laughs> it's not going to work, man. She's got a warm to this, right? But ladies, have mercy on the poor boy. So there's a trade-off, you know, like, well, you know, just It's evening, the kids are in bed. You're in the the hallowed place. He wants to be intimate. And she needs to talk about some things. (laughs) And so, it's like, you want to talk about this now? And the answer is yes, sir. Yes. Okay, yes. There's part of this process where she needs to... It's cathartic. Just, she needs to get some things off the radar. Right? Ladies, help me here. <laughs> just needs to get some things off the radar. And so men, you ought to just be her friend for a while. Right? That's, she, this is friendship to her. Be her friend. But ladies, at some point, have mercy on him. <laughs> Seriously. He's not a woman. So when you start seeing the eyes vibrate, You know, and he's starting to show signs of seizures, you know. Just, you know, just have mercy on the poor man. And just set it aside. Right? There's a trade-off here. And the Bible talks about a humility. But the good news is the payoff See, in our text, again, verse 5 through 10 talks about the example of the Lord Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. and He made himself a servant, and he, he left his throne. In other words, he's stepping down from his own interest for the good of others. And then it goes on to say that in, in response to that, his name is above every name. In other words, there's a payoff to being considerate of other people. There's a payoff when you stop thinking about your own interests and begin to invest in the interests of others. That's Christianity. That's why Christian marriages should work and do work when people are Christians in their marriage. Instead of insisting and staking your claim on how you feel and how you see things, you're willing to stop and understand the differences and begin to invest in those differences and begin to be considerate of those differences, not insisting right or wrong, but just saying, you know what, it's just different. And because I am a Christian, I'm willing to think about the needs of somebody else. And there's a payoff, even Paul, you know, in his trials, whose trials I wouldn't wish on anybody. In the light of eternity and eternal things, he said, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I'm loath to consider the differences in marriage to an affliction. But if that's true for him being beaten and shipwrecked and and betrayed, how much more true as Christians in our marriage when we will think of the interests of somebody else. He's talking about an exchanging, an exchange rate. Whenever I go to other countries, I have to exchange American currency for the bottle caps of that nation, you know, the monopoly money of that nation. And, the exchange rate often varies and what he's saying is is that when you take the sacrifices of your Christian walk and they are exchanged into spiritual and eternal denominations and currency there is an increase that goes beyond measure and you know that's true in marriage it's worth it to not be selfish in your marriage There is a payoff. It's like an investment. It's like having the foresight to invest now for 20 years down the road. That's why banks lend you money for 30 years on your house. It's not because they're real friendly people, it's because by the time you get done paying off what they've lent you, you will have also paid off $300,000 in addition to it. They're wise the payoff is huge. And that's what he's saying here. That in human relationship, in the congregation, and how much more in your marriage, if you are willing to give, if you're willing to invest, the payoff is huge. And you have to have the faith to understand that. So what Ecclesiastes means when it says two are better than one, And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is talking about the power of of, of a rope that's begun to be entwined together. That when a man and a woman find that relationship with the threefold cord of God's presence, there's a payoff, not only in this life, but in eternity. Look at verse 15 and 16, chapter 2. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. It really brings it all back to our testimony and our ability to touch our generation for God. Our marriages will equip us in a unique way to shine as lights in a crooked and a perverse generation that resembles Sodom and Gomorrah. As in the days of Noah, he's saying that this act of of consideration and sacrifice will cause you to be equipped to reach your generation. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? And marriage then becomes a means to an end not an end in itself. See, the end is that we are to make heaven and we're to bring others to heaven with us. Not only our children, but our neighbors, our generation. And there's a payoff, friend. Not only in that, but in our ability in verse 14, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain in vain. He's talking about standing in eternity, saying your posture in human relationship is going to cause me to rejoice in that all that we did was not in vain. See the payoff friend is huge. Pastor Mitchell has said, if you do nothing else, And stay married to the person you're married to and raise your children in the kingdom of God. You have made impact on your generation. (laughs) Only eternity will fully bear that out. And that explains the fury of hell. But there's a promise, Jesus said. If you hear my words and do them, you dig deep and build your house on a rock. And when the storms of life come, it will not fall, but it will stand Paul's saying here that there's going to be a sense in eternity that our labors were effective. There's going to be a sense in eternity that our lights were like a light that shone because we've done this right. Somebody wrote, I once thought marriage took just two to make a goal, but now I'm convinced it takes the Lord also. And not one marriage fails where Christ is asked to enter as lovers come together with Jesus as the center. But marriage seldom thrives and homes are incomplete till he's welcomed there to help avoid defeat. In homes where Christ is first, it's obvious to see these unions really work for marriage still takes three. I want to close with a letter that a man wrote to the Chicago Tribune Because as you're here and no doubt have struggles and there's no marriage that are perfect, you need to thank God that you're here and you have a spouse that wants to be here with you and serve God with you. Do you know how precious that is? Listen to this letter. I don't believe this man was a Christian. It doesn't really matter. It says, I'm I'm not a writer, but I'm taking some space in the newspaper to write something special about Kathy. We weren't so special, you know, I'm just a little insurance man, but when someone makes your life so good, you you just hate to let her leave the world without some kind of memorial to let people know she was alive. I want to tell people to look over at their husbands and wives and say to themselves, my God, look what I have here. People take so much for granted. It's as if they think everyone is going to live forever and they can put off their love and appreciation until they have time. He says, I'm sitting home at night. I see her in the hallways. I see the furniture we bought. I see her sitting beside me on the couch. If I could go back again, I would do everything different. I would let her know how much she meant to me. Look at your husband. Look at your wife. If you think you have things pretty nice, say it out loud. Don't assume they're going to be there forever. I didn't think of that until Kathy was dead. For me, it's too late, but it's not too late for you. Let's bow our heads. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Thank God for his word. Thank God for an anchor. Thank God for a foundation. What would it be like to try to navigate the waters of this generation without a relationship with God, without His Word, without a church that preaches the Word of God. What would it be like? The Bible says the last days, perilous times will come. A very dangerous time to be alive. That's what that means. But you know what, friend? We have an anchor, a foundation that will cause our lives to be as good as they possibly can be this side of eternity. And again, I want to pause. If you're not here and you don't know Jesus Christ, friend, the beginning is to come to God and repent and be saved. And if you're here and you need Jesus, I want you to lift your hands and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not saved. I'm backslidden. I need God. I'm not right with God. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. God's here. And changing the appeal, couples, God will make the difference will act on his word by faith, by humility, by demonstrating and imitating what Jesus Christ did. Your husband's different from you. Your wife is different from you. And there is a huge payoff in the humility of looking out for the interests of others and God's dealing with men and women in this place that there are specific areas where he's convicted you of selfishness he's convicted you of condescension he's convicted you perhaps of buying into this world's despising of marriage and or or perhaps God is just challenging you to thank him for what you have and invest in what you have because it's very rare And in this last time of prayer, we're going to pray again at our seats. But if God has spoken to you in this seminar and you want to respond, I want you to lift your hands by faith before God. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, amen. Hands are going up. Hallelujah. How many more? You lift your hands. Say, God's dealing with me in an area of my life. I'm going to drive a marker right here in my marriage. I'm going to do some things. I'm going to respond. I'm going to let God help me. Amen. God sees these hands. How many more? You lift your hands. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for these hands. Let's begin to pray. I want you to begin to get a hold of God. Hallelujah. God, I pray the Holy Ghost. God, I thank you for our spouses. God, I thank you for marriage. I thank you for the strength. I thank you for the blessing of family. I thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for our church, God. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to help us. God, forgive us and minister revelation. God, let this be a lasting impact. Let us leave this time, God, with a miracle in our soul, God. Begin to cry out to God. Begin to talk to God. God, I thank you, God. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you, God, for the resource in relationship, God, in our marriages. Thank you for the work of grace in our soul, God. I thank you for the power, God, to overcome. I praise you for this, and I thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hallelujah. I want to thank you for being a very tremendous uh, group to preach to. Amen. I just uh, appreciate the opportunity to come home and preach a marriage seminar. The Lord bless you. Let's give God praise as pastor comes. Amen.